Well, open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4 through 3. We, uh, we have completed the sixth section of this wonderful letter, and, and we're beginning chapter 4 this morning, which, which starts the, the seventh segment, where, where the Apostle Paul is going to give some joyful instructions. And uh, I had Matt read the entire section. These joyful instructions are from verse 1 through verse, verse 9. And then Paul is going to uh, close out the letter. It'll be followed by his thankful praise for the Philippian church for their gift in verses 10 through 20, and then his friendly farewell. It's only a few verses at the, at the end of the, the letter. If you've read these verses, or if you paid attention this morning uh, to Matt, um, you know that, that this section cre- uh, contains some precious promises. Uh, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Uh, be anxious for nothing. Uh, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, think on these things. Uh, these verses that you probably have memorized or have heard many times, and that's a wonderful thing. But they're actually all part of a, of a single package that, that I'm going to begin to unfold for, for you this morning. I can remember a man who, who beca- became a good friend um, that pulled me aside after about three months of, of following Christ. And he gave me some instructions. I'd only been a believer just a few months and we were standing out in the front, of, front stoop of the, of the church and and, and he said, Brian, let me give you some advice. Don't get discouraged by what you see out of people, even in the church. Keep your eyes on Jesus. I can't tell you that I really understood what, what, he, meant in, in the, what he meant in the moment. I can remember thinking, I mean, why would I get discouraged? I mean, my sins are forgiven. I love the Lord. I love everybody. Doesn't everybody just feel this way? Isn't this the way it is all the time? And what I learned later was was the behavior of some professing Christians. Um, Even sometimes my behavior can be downright unchristian. In fact, one of the, the first tests that I ever faced was a church conflict between two members that they really had nothing to do with the church but but threatened it greatly. Um, an older man in our congregation had an unresolved family dispute over some property with his son-in-law who was also in the church and this older man was was one of our trustees and and the pastor actually went to visit the son-in-law uh, at the property and in this older man's mind that meant he was taking sides and so from that point forward, he refused to come to the preaching service. He, he would only attend Sunday school, and then he would leave. And he would make comments during the Sunday school class before and after about the pastor and about the other man, and that began to sow doubts in the, uh, in the minds of, of unsuspecting members. The, the whole situation ended after nine months of a series of business meetings that, that, that eventually put the man and his wife, rightly so, out of the church for, for being factious. I mean, it's a heart-wrenching thing to, uh, to watch. And this friend of mine didn't want me to stumble over, over that. It didn't shake my faith, but it did teach me what that wise man was trying to prepare me to, to endure. It also took the church a significant period of time to regain its footing. I mean, not to mention the time and the energy wasted on a petty squabble. 
Sadly, that danger is, is not unique to churches in my hometown, but all churches, and all churches of all times. And the Apostle Paul is going to help us with that this morning. As Paul begins to wrap up this wonderful letter, he begins to provide some joyful instructions. And right out of the gate, Paul addresses the topic of unity in the church. There are actually nine commands listed uh, in, in the entirety of verses 1 through 9. They're all given in, in, in a staccato type of fashion, one right after the other, uh, and without a lot of explanation. There's a beginning command at the headwaters in verse 1, stand firm in the Lord, and that's followed by a list of additional commands. Help these women rejoice in the Lord, or two actually in verse 4. Again, rejoice, that's also a command. Let your reasonableness be known, don't be anxious. In verse 6, let your requests be made known to God. Think about these things, practice what you've learned. There's a lot of discussion about how to outline uh, the, these nine verses. But I think it's very plain, actually, if you, if you look at the whole letter. Uh, some want to include verse 1 at the ending, uh, tack it onto the ending of chapter 3. If you have an ESV study Bible, that's, that's where the division will, will be. It'll look like they, they've attached uh, chapter 4, verse 1 to, to the end of, of the thought in, in chapter 3. Something like this, for our citizenship is in heaven from which we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform uh, the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see my joy and my crown in this way, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. Others take take it, verses 1 through 3, as kind of a standalone section dealing with a specific issue of disagreement uh, before Paul concludes the letters. Like, we've got to get this out of the way before I, I tell you some, some important things. But I think the command of verse 1 is actually the overarching theme. I think verse 1 of chapter 4 begins a new thought, and I think it is the, it's the fountain or the headwaters for all of the other uh, uh, commands that, uh, that, that, that come after I think that because this idea of standing firm in the Lord is repeated over and over in in the book. So I think it's the setting uh, for for the commands that follow. There is one command that holds all these other commands together. Paul issues here a call for steadiness or stability in the church. He he says, be resolute, stand firm, possess stability um, as a church body. I mean, he gives the goal or the theme of the rest of the commands right out of the gate, and then he exhorts us how to fulfill them with the other commands. It's the commands that follow. I mean, we know this because standing firm or resolute in the Lord is something that the the apostle has been saying the the entire letter. Uh, When he actually turns to the Philippians after explaining his situation, he says, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. That's how it kind of launches in in exhorting the church so that whether I come and see or remain absent you I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit and with one mind striving together for the faith of of the gospel in chapter 2 he says therefore if there's any encouragement in Christ if there's any consolation of love if there's any fellowship of the spirit if any affection and compassion make my joy complete by being of the same mind maintaining the same love united in spirit intent on one 
purpose. Paul told them that uh, he was standing firm, even though he was imprisoned in in chapter 1. He indicated that he was standing firm, uh, even though there were other preachers who had personal animus toward him. I don't care as long as I get to preach the gospel. He said he was standing firm even though there were those who perverted uh, the gospel and the Judaizers in chapter 3. He said he he encouraged them to stand firm in their own persecution in in chapter 2. And now he calls them to stand firm in their pursuit and practice of of Christ's likeness. It's clear from Philippians. We we typically call it the, the joyful book, and it is. But it's clear from this letter that God doesn't want an unsteady and vacillating church. He wants the church to be strong in the grace that the the Lord provides. And so now, at the close of the letter, he's going to tell them one more time that they should stand firm in the Lord. And then he's going to give a list of commands to show them specifically how they can do that. That's what comes in verses 2 through 9. I mean, think of it as a list of how to stand firm. Or, or if you obey these, these nine commands, uh, that will bring stability in, in the church or your life as, as you live as a, as a Christian. And Paul begins with a passionate plea for unity in the church. I mean, that makes sense, doesn't it? Unity is a bedrock of stability in a congregation, and it's a requirement for for joy. I mean, you can't build anything on an unstable foundation. If you do, it'll eventually begin to show the cracks and and faults of of its base, and that's important for a church as well. And so today, God's going to give us the first building block for a stable and useful church, and and he'll do that by by reminding us unity comes from two sources in verses 1 through through 3. He begins with a general command in verse 1, stand firm in the Lord, and then he follows that up with a specific appeal to be of the same mind in uh, in the Lord, directed at two women who are in conflict in, in the church. The focus is harmony in the church. Harmony or unity in the church comes from two sources, two commitments by obeying two commands, or as we will call it, two unifying sources of stability. There's the unity that comes from standing firm in the Lord, verse 1. And then there's unity from being of a similar mind in the gospel work, verses 2 through 3. Standing firm in the Lord and being of a similar mind in the, the gospel work. Let's look at the the first one here, the first unifying source of stability comes from standing firm in, in the Lord. And in verse 1, there is a reminder of your relationship to Christ and one another before he ever gives the command. And then there's a requirement. He, then he gives the command to, toward the end of the verse. There's a requirement of a resolute stand. Look, if you would, at verse 1. He says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, uh, whom I long to see my joy and crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord my beloved. Now, this is not new for the Apostle Paul. The word therefore points back to the reasons that he just got done talking about as the motive to obey and do what he's commanding now. And he's basically saying because you've experienced the righteousness that comes from God through, through faith in, in Christ in verses 7 through 17 of chapter 3, because of the destiny of the, uh, of the enemies of the cross, you don't want to be them in verses 18 and 19. Because our heavenly citizenship is, is, 
is with the Lord and, and, and because he's going to return in verses 20 and 21, we are compelled by these motives to stand firm and be of the same mind. Therefore, that's what he's saying. Paul is calling our attention to what he just said as the basis for what he's about to say. I mean, previous facts are the basis for this future obedience. And Paul does that all the time, Romans 12, 12, 1 and 2. The commands that, that God gives are always rooted in the promises that he makes to us. Or as it's been said, the imperatives of the Bible are planted in the indicatives. Notice how each command in this list is always connected to the gospel. Verse 1, stand firm in the Lord. Look at verse 2, I urge Yodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. If you were at verse 3, Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared in my struggle in the gospel. And he says their names are in the book of life. Verse 4, rejoice in the Lord. Again, I will say rejoice. Verse 5, live humbly or let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. The promise of his coming. Don't be anxious for for anything. The peace of God. I mean, all of the commands are directly connected to a promise that God has, that God has made. This is a command. It comes from the sovereign Lord of the universe. You are obligated to obey it. But what Christ has done and what he will do is always the ground on which his commands are built. And so you obey them because of your relationship to him and to others. Walter Hansen said, Grace always precedes, surrounds, empowers, and concludes the life of obedience. I mean, Paul, even in this letter, the letter begins with with this greeting. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And this book ends with the blessing. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. And if you don't understand who is speaking to you, then you might not take this command seriously. And it is a command. But if you don't understand his friendly heart, then you might not be as motivated to to obey it, or you might think something differently. It's a command. MacArthur said we need to remember what's written here is a command from God. God is commanding us to stand firm, and I'm afraid that we've gotten to the point that we feel like commands, the commands of the Bible, are suggestions. Because we don't take God very seriously. He went on to quote quote, A.W. Tozer, who said the reason that we do that is because we've gotten curiously uninterested in God. Tozer said, I've been assessing the church for a long time, and my conclusion is basically that the church is politely bored with God. (laughs) He said, you expect me to entertain you, you expect me to do something that will attract your attention... Or, and titillate your emotions because, frankly, if all I do is talk about God, you'll be bored. Hmm. And MacArthur said that blasphemous attitude will lead to apathy that turns a command from God into something more like a suggestion. This is not a suggestion to stand firm in the Lord. But if you fail to understand the grace that precedes the command, that empowers the command, then it will seem harsh and cold. Or like something that you can't do. I mean, think of it this way. How do you feel, and I know feelings are misleading, but 
Just follow me. How, how do you feel when someone who, who has no relationship to you just immediately starts giving you orders? I mean, even if they have the right to do that. New boss shows up, they don't have, you don't know, have any idea who they are, they don't spend any time introducing themselves at all, and they just begin to command you right out of the gate. Now, they may have the authority to do that, and, and you have to do what they say because it's right. But doesn't it motivate you differently when it's someone that you know cares about you? Maybe they, they labor, talk about how important of a contribution you could make. Well, God has the right to tell you what, what to do because he's God. And it doesn't matter how you feel about the commands of God, but he loves you with the deepest kind of love. I mean, he commands those things out of that love. I mean, one of the reasons you may be struggling is you need to understand, as Luther said, his friendly heart. Martin Luther went through that. He, he said God looked like a monster to him because he was trying to work his way to heaven. But when he understood the salvation was, was all God provided by him, and that faith alone was what connected. And Luther said the friendly heart of Christ, the door to his friendly heart flew open, and, and I saw his true character. Failing to do these things will hurt you. And God loves you too much to, to lead them in your life. And, and Paul loves the Philippians too. He makes it clear in how he speaks to them. Look, if you would, at verse 1 again. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown in this way, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. I mean, one commentator said that. I mean, that, that almost sounds sappy. I mean, there are five terms of endearment in this, in this verse used to describe Paul's close relationship before firing off the commands. My brethren, beloved, longed for, my joy and crown. He, he even says beloved again. He says that twice. I mean, talk about a pastoral heart. In any time Paul draws their, uh, on their mutual bond in Christ, it's to communicate how dear they are before, before he, he tells them something to do. I mean, chapter 1, verse 12, Now you know, my brethren... Um, chapter 2, verse 12, so then, my beloved. Chapter 3, verse 1, finally, my brethren. He calls those outside of the family of God uh, dogs and evil workers and the false circumcision. How would you express your sincere affection for someone that, that you cherished? I mean, someone you were willing to lay down your life for. Someone you were willing to delay heaven for. You realize that's what the Apostle Paul says? He literally says that back in, in Philippians chapter 1, verses 23. He says, but I'm hard-pressed from both directions. Have a desire to depart, to be with Christ. That's just to go to heaven. For that is much better. It's much better to be in heaven than on earth. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue... Uh, with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. Paul says it would be much better for me to go to heaven, but I'm willing to delay heaven because I think it would be better to remain here to serve you. I mean, that's a commitment to people, isn't it? My beloved brethren is how Paul expresses his deepest affection for these people. One writer said, Beloved in the adjectival form is the richest, deepest, and strongest Greek word for love. Then notice he adds something else. He adds the phrase, whom I long to see. So there is this affection in his heart, and, and, and there's a yearning to be with him. He says, my beloved, whom I long to see. 
Maybe you've been separated from someone before because of a military deployment. Maybe your job took you away. Maybe COVID has kept you from, from being able to travel and see your family. Maybe, maybe you have a, you know, a mother or father or a grandparent in a nursing home and you can't, you can't get to see them. And you yearn to be reunited with them again. I mean, that's the kind of longing that Paul has here. There's a, there's a distance that separated them, and I want to close the distance. I long to be, to be with you. And Paul says that's the kind of longing that he has for the church. And that's the kind of longing that you and I should have for the church as well. It's easy to understand the word longing using those illustrations of a separation because of a military deployment or because of COVID. But, but sadly, if I change that illustration, too many Christians wouldn't understand this verse if I used their local church as the analogy for longing. You should love your church this same way. You should love it so much that, that whenever the people of God, that when, even when you're on vacation, you miss them so bad that you can't wait to return. You should have a growing longing when you leave here this morning uh, until you're able to gather with, with believers again. And Paul goes on to tell us why. He says, because Christians are your joy. Fellow believers are your joy and your crown, just like they are for, for the Apostle Paul. Look at verse 1 again. Therefore, my beloved brethren, that's, that's how he feels in his heart, here's his yearning. I long to see you. I long to, to close the gap, the distance. I want to be with you. Why? Because you're my joy and crown. I think the joy is self-explanatory. But his crown is, is something that, that's going to come in the future. It's, it's eschatological. The word for crown is stephanos, which means a victor's crown. He's not talking about a, you know, a kingly crown here. He's talking about a laurel wreath that was given to victors uh, of the games. And the Philippians were Paul's current joy. And they were also going to be his wreath of honor as a faithful servant of Christ whenever he entered into, into glory. They're the evidence that he loves Jesus and he serves Jesus by serving them. Do you have somebody like that? That, that they're your joy now, you, you, you enjoy being with them, but in the future, they're going to be your crown. They're going to be your evidence that, that you have been you've been yoked up with them in the, in the church. Someone uh, whose spiritual life has been advanced by your labor. Maybe you led them to Christ, but, uh, maybe you helped them through a difficult time, maybe you re- restored their, their walk or, or, or something else. And, it, and they're your crown. If you don't, you're missing out on one of the greatest blessings this life has to offer. And, and you're, you're probably missing a, a key component to spiritual stability. Being a simple slave for Jesus' sake and bearing fruit in, in, in the life of another person is pure joy. And, and it's a motive for, for heaven. There's a young lady that still sends Tracy a, a card or an email every year or every time something significant happens in her life and thanks her for the time that she invested in her whenever she was first married. Never fails. Usually comes at a time whenever she needs encouragement. Listen, treading corn is hard. Serving can be difficult. But being able to glean from it will give you strength for the journey. And that's one of the blessings that God, God gives. 
Your joy is not just in Christ, it's in other people, and your joy is in serving other people because of the joy that you get from that and then what you'll get in heaven. And he says you need to stand firm in that joy in the Lord. We could go to verse 1 again. Now you get to the command. You move from the reminder to the requirement of a resolute conviction. He says, in this way, stand firm in the Lord, my, my beloved. So after hearing the, the serious warnings of chapter 3, you must avoid placing your trust in, in, in any place other than Christ alone. Uh, you must look to, uh, to Christ for God's righteousness to be found in Him. Because of that, you want to pursue being like Him, and, and, and that's very practical. There's, a, there's the practice of Christ-likeness. Now he says, you must maintain a stable walk. I mean, last week, there are two ways to live. But once you settle it's God's way through Christ, we must be resolute in the Lord. You must must stand firm in that. And that stability brings unity. Unity in the truth. The word that Paul uses here is stecho. It's a a military word. It it means uh, to remain stationary or immovable. I mean, it almost sounds like a... Sounds like what you're supposed to do. Stecco. I mean, it's like, I'm going to stick. I'm going to stay. I'm, I'm going to stand. Have you ever seen the, the, the Queen's guards in, in England, the, the ones with the funny-looking black, tall, fuzzy hats? You ever watch some of the YouTubes where people try to, you know, make a move? And they just, just stand there? If you have, you understand this word. They're not to move, no matter what. You're not to move, no matter what. And as soldiers who are required to hold their position, believers are not to move from Christ or His truth. And and that commitment is is part of what brings stability. Ephesians 4 says God has given teachers to the church to equip it in in the truth. And then he immediately follows with with what what that will result in. He says, until we attain the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, as a result of you being equipped with the truth by the teachers that God has given to the church, and you then take that equipping and do the work of the ministry in the church, the result of that is you're not going to be tossed about here and there, carried about by every wind of doctrine and trickery of men and craftiness and the deceitfulness. Christians are called to stand firm in many different ways. But the metal that strengthens them is the ore of truth. We're not to be double-minded. We're not to be tossed around. We're not to be concerned when the winds of the culture throw you in this direction or the other we're not to doubt we're called to be firm and to stand strong and you can do that because the the word of god is unchanging christ is unchanging i mean what paul does here is very similar to what he does in first corinthians sixteen thirteen, where he tells the church to act like men now he's writing this to the corinthian church And the Corinthian church had women in it just as well as men. But he specifically says, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. It's it's like what we say when we say, um, uh, you know, be a man 
or man up. That's what Paul's saying here. Stand strong. The Greek word is built on a, on a root that refers to adult males, mature men. Council for Biblical Manhood and Womanhood said, it calls for us to put away whatever fears or reserve we have about doing something and do it. That's the idea. It's not just to have you know, good intentions, but to actually follow through. And so Paul says here in Philippians, we must be fixed like a mature man, bold and, and uncompromising in, in, in being rooted in Christ. And the way that we do that is to be like-minded about our task on the earth. Let me give you the second unifying source of stability. It's from being of a similar mind in the gospel work. And he, 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 there's a command here to be in harmony. There's a reminder of some comrades that, that can be a help in that. And then there is a commendation to hearten the two women that are being called out here. Look at me, what verse 2. He says, I urge Euodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Now there's a little word in verse 1 that that you can easily overlook in, in the Greek that bridges this sentence together. The little word is hutos. It's translated in, in, in your Bibles in, in this way. Look at how he ends uh, verse, verse 2. Uh, I'm sorry, verse 1. In this way, stand firm in the Lord. And then Paul begins to explain how to fulfill that command. He begins with a command for steadfast commitment to Christ alone. And then he says, in this way, then he immediately follows that up with a list of commands of how to do that. Stand firm in the Lord, in this way. And he starts by giving specific counsel toward Christ-honoring compatibility in the church. There were two women in the church at Philippi that have an ongoing disagreement of, of some kind, and it's so problematic that Paul finds it necessary to plead with them publicly for unity. I mean, how would you like it if your name was called out in front of the entire church? It wouldn't be too pleasant. I mean, even beyond that, how would you like it if your name was inscripturated in the Bible for, for, for the entire universal church for all the ages to know your name? I mean, what do you, what do you know about these women? Only that they're an example of two people who are at odds with each other in the church. That's an indirect admonition not to wait to reconcile with someone. It's a way bigger deal to God than you might think. And evidently Paul gave them ample time to reconcile, but because they refused or, or just failed to follow through, they were, they were named publicly. Look at verse 2. I want you to notice that Paul appeals to both of these women individually. Notice in your translation the word I urge and I urge is put between both of them. He doesn't say I urge Euodia and Syntyche. He says I urge Euodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. I appeal to both of them. He pleads with them to live in harmony with the Lord. Now, we don't know a lot about the situation, only that they were, that they were probably converts from paganism. 
because they're both named for the goddess of fortune. Euodia means success, and Syntyche means lucky. It makes a lot of sense because the first converts of this church were, were women. I mean, Paul planted this church in Acts 16, and Luke mentions some God-fearing women by the river. Look what it says. On the Sabbath day, we went out outside the gate to the riverside where we were supposing that there would be a place of prayer, and we sat down and began speaking to the women who had assembled. A woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a settler of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening, and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. She was baptized, and the church was launched. These two women could have been Gentiles who were part of of that group whenever Lydia was converted. What we do know is the appeal to them is to have the same mindset in the Lord. Now, what does that mean? We have the idea of standing firm. He's going to explain specifically how to do that. But here he says, he says, be of the same mind. What does that mean? Well, Paul's already spelled that out for us over and over. He keeps coming back to it. He comes back to it again. It's Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through, six, or 5 through 11. Let this attitude be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. I mean, that's the mind that he's calling them to, to right now. He says that both of these women needed to change their attitudes of disagreement to the attitude of Christ in, in Philippians 2. They needed to humble themselves. They needed to take on the form of a slave. They needed to be obedient even unto death. And in this case, death of their own personal agenda or personal feelings. And having the attitude of Christ will put to death any personal dispute or dispute over the way to to do the gospel. And the problem between these women is fundamentally personal. It was something about their rights or their way. And so Paul calls them to the attitude of Christ. We know that. We know that the issue was not a doctrinal dispute, because if that would have been the case, Paul would have taken a side. I mean, this is the early church. He would have done, if this was a doctrinal matter, if they disagreed over something significant theologically, the Apostle Paul would have said, Euodia is right, and here's why, just like he did with the Judaizers. But he mentions nothing about any type of doctrinal issue. He says the issue is their lack of harmony. And because of that, they needed to reconcile personally. And his appeal is individual. But I'm sure it would have hit home corporately, wouldn't it? I mean, just like it hits home for us. How would you like to stand before God one day and he tell you that your petty dispute with Sister Sally was the reason that his church didn't grow? It'd be a pretty heavy thing, wouldn't it? Or your unwillingness to forgive Brother Bob completely with, was the bitterness that defiled the work of Christ in the whole congregation. When you put it like that, it places the seriousness on our interpersonal disagreements. And sadly, disagreements are not an uncommon occurrence in, in the church. How do I know that? Because this verse is in the Bible. <laughs> And so is 1 Corinthians 1 through 3. And because I'm a human being, and I, and I know I've had personal personal feelings trampled on it and otherwise it doesn't make you any less of a christian i mean god's not shocked by our disagreements or or anything else what god's shocked by is the fact that we won't obey what he says when he tells us how to fix them now i'm not thinking of anyone in particular in preaching this passage or or about what i'm about to say i, I really am i'm not 
But in a church this size, there's probably multiple people who are, who are unreconciled in here in, in, in some way. I mean, there are likely ongoing offenses that are unspoken, undealt with, or partially reconciled, and this is hindering the work of Christ in this church. I don't know what that is. And you might think it's just a difference that, that, that only you know about, and, and it's okay if you leave it under the rug of your heart, but God's saying otherwise. He's saying you must live in harmony. Take it, therefore, uh, before the light of the cross and, and be done with it. There's too much at stake. Too many saints that need ministry, your ministry, too many souls that, that need the mission, Christ's mission, to seek and to save the lost. And your disunity can hinder both of those things. So if you can't get over it or resolve it, if you wait too long, you, you'll need to be reconciled by others. Look at verse 3. Here is the, the, uh, the comrades to, to help. He says, indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared uh, my struggle in the cause of the gospel. Paul now mentions a man, and we don't know much about him either, and, and he calls him to help these women to get together. And like the women, we don't have a lot of info. He turns to somebody in the congregation that's either unnamed or his name is right in front of, of us. And he asks him to, to assist them. And he says, I, I ask you also, true companion, to assist them. The pronoun you is singular. And so he's talking to some individual. And it's entirely possible that the true companion is actually, that, those, those words is his name. I mean, if you don't translate the word, then the person's name is Sisygus. Like Euodia means lucky, or like Sisygus would mean true companion, or, or yoke fellow, or like Onesimus means helpful. We don't know much about this person, so you can't pontificate too much, but, but some commentators may believe that it may be even one of the overseers or the elders that Paul mentions in the, in the opening verse. And if so, he's taking apostolic authority. He's saying to one of the elders, you need to deal with this. You need to get these two women together. The downside to that theory is there's not a lot of evidence uh, uh, that there's a, this is, Sisygus is a common name in Roman culture. So it could be an unknown companion that, that Paul still has in Philippi who's laboring in the gospel. Regardless, he is to assist in the reconciliation. He's to be joined and he's to assist. And what's the point? Paul reminds us that sometimes you need a prompt to do what you know you need to do, but you don't want to do. That's why he calls their names. But secondly, you may need help to accomplish reconciliation. Isn't that exactly what the Bible says in Galatians 6, 1 and 2? Brethren, uh, even if anyone is caught in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness. Each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. That deception is thinking that, that you couldn't fall to that. The last part meaning that if you think you're too strong ever to fall to a dispute or a petty disagreement, then you're deceiving yourself. And if you think it doesn't hurt the church or the work of the gospel, when you leave it unreconciled, then you're even more deceived. And so look at what Paul ends with in verse 3. 
He says, indeed, true companion, I ask you to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel. Paul pleads with these two women individually as friends, and then he describes them as fellow fighters in the gospel work. It's a gladiatorial term. They're fighting in the gospel coliseum. I mean, it's obvious by that that these are believers. These are not tares that that Satan has sown in the church to, to destroy it. Paul clearly says they're believers, and they've been engaged in the gospel work with him. But now they're put on the sidelines because of their dispute or their disagreement. In fact, one of the reasons that he wants them reconciled is because they've been so valuable to the work of God. Listen. It's entirely possible for sincere believers to get cross with one another. And if reconciliation doesn't take place, it will sideline them, and eventually the the work of the church, the work of the gospel, will suffer. I mean, isn't it interesting that after all of the theological arguments and and things that Paul's been talking about in this letter... um, that he's been dealing with the incarnation of Christ and the exaltation of Christ and and fighting against the Judaizers and and finding your security in Christ alone, that then all of a sudden he he addresses two women by name over a squabble? Does that seem odd or out of place? It's not. I mean, it tells you that Paul understands that discord in the church is just as deadly and dangerous as bad doctrine. That's what it tells you. Disputes and disagreements and bitterness and unforgiveness can kill the effectiveness of a church, especially when it's in leadership. These women are not pastors or, or teachers, but, but they, they seem to have some prominence. Maybe like Lydia, they use the resources to further the gospel. But sadly, they now have been rendered ineffective and unuseful to Christ because they won't let go of their hurt feelings. You must subordinate your personal agenda to the larger agenda of the gospel. That's what Paul's saying. This means humbling, humbling and sacrificially giving yourself for the sake of others. Just like Christ, who had rights, but didn't claim those rights. And was even mistreated. And wasn't vindicated on earth, he was vindicated in heaven. You say, but, 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 but it's right. It may be right. And God will determine whether it's right. And God will see your motives, whether you're right or whether you're wrong. You can't even trust your own motives. When will it be vindicated? It will be vindicated before the bar of God one day. It may never be vindicated on this earth, but that doesn't change what you're you're commanded to do. You're to humble yourself, and you're to be obedient. And if you have to be commanded like, like Paul starts with, then there's an issue. I mean, will it really be that big a deal in eternity? Is the offense really worth sidelining yourself or another member of the church? And if you have to be commanded like Paul starts with here, uh, if you can't accomplish it yourself, you also might need a a word of encouragement so you don't fall out of the race. So look what he ends with, verse 3. He says that that they shared my struggle in the, the cause of the gospel together with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. These women are included in that, in that list. Paul says these women have shared as fellow workers of the gospel, past tense. 
And that's at risk of continuing if they don't reconcile. But he ends by calling them my fellow workers whose names are in, presently, in the book of life. I mean, these women are are part of the elect. You can get discouraged, can't you? I mean, if feelings are hurt and there's a personal disagreement and you struggle and you can't let it go, I mean, you get to the point where you have to be called out or God brings it to your attention some way and then somebody else has to come along and help you help you reconcile, you can get discouraged even after it's over with. You can get embarrassed. You can be overwhelmed by self-pity. And so Paul reminds these women in the entire church that they have been useful for the gospel's sake. And he says that they're among Christ's fellow workers and they're listed, even, over the, even after the dispute, they're listed in Christ's book. One sin or even a season of sin does not remove the work that you've done for Christ. And it doesn't remove the work that he can do through you. In fact, the whole reason that God wants to dig the splinter out the splinter of bitterness, is because he wants to use you again. The question that that you have to answer is, will you hold out your hand and let him? Or will somebody else have to take your hand and get the splinter out? You ever watched parents the splinter out of the the hand of a a child, maybe a wiggly five-year-old? We're just the same way. The little five-year-old doesn't naturally say, here, take it out, no problem, you know. No, 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 I don't want to do that. And then sometimes dad has to hold the hand so mom can take the splinter and get it out. Paul says, hold your hand out. It may hurt, but it's because the Lord wants to restore you to usefulness. And he doesn't want any hindrance in the work of the gospel. Two unifying sources of stability. Unity from standing firm in the Lord. Stand firm in the Lord. And stand with the the mindset of humility. You have no rights being of a similar mind in the gospel work. So how's your stability? Do you need to get your gospel sea legs? The culture and everything moves beneath your feet and, and the curse blows, the winds blow. You need strong gospel sea legs. Then press into the truth and take hold of God's promises. Understand that he's promised, what he's promised you is the source of your strength. But then once you do, stand. Gird up your heart. Put your shoulder into it. How's your relationships? Is there someone or something that you've taken personal? Maybe only partially forgiven? God says you're still useful to him, so you must take the mind of Christ and humble yourself. So we can use you again. Let it go. Take up your cross and follow me, Jesus says. Put you by your heads. Father, what a clear and practical word. You are so gracious to your people. You give us the Bible to help us deal with sin and make sense out of life. There's not a single person in here immune or above this. We all have offenses that happen in the heart. And sometimes they get to the point where we need to deal with them. And um, you love us that way. The evidence of your love is that you've given us your word and and you you do this. You point these things out. And, And yet, Lord, 
there's evidence that, that you love the world. Um, evidence that you love believers is your, is your Bible. Evidence that you love the world is that you're willing to go to the cross and that you freely offer. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. You freely offer that all who repent and believe, you'll forgive them and cleanse them. It's the greatest evidence of love ever was. And then you'll bring them into the family and, and then you'll, you'll use them. And you'll give them clarity as they walk. Oh, Father, help us to be a church that stands and help us to be a church that, that's unified, free from any dispute or disagreement. I thank you that we are. And I pray that we would maintain that with, with tremendous vigilance. And I ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.